is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But on the Bob phone from Rockland County, New York, he's our guest, musician, Rob Stoner. Everybody's wearing a disguise to hide what they've got left behind their eyes. A quote from, of course, Abandoned Love, which I played and sang on and uh, was eventually uh, released on the Biograph album. And nowhere am I credited as the vocalist on that song, which is uh, kind of a drag. Bit of a pisser. Much of it is a duet. It's, it's my only studio duet with Bob, my only studio vocal duet. Ugh. Because Emmy Lou had gone home and he wanted someone to sing harmony, so uh, there I was. So it was my uh, harmony debut with him. Wow. Were you playing bass at the same time you were harmonizing? Yeah, exactly. We were both doing the whole thing live and uh, we were reading the words off the same music stand. And the words were constantly being revised from take to take on those sessions at the Czar. And uh, Jacques Levy, who was the co-lyricist on the project, kept coming over with these long yellow legal pads with new words, and Bob would just read them off the music stand. Poor Amy Lewis, she was she was really out to sea with this stuff, man. She was having trouble following its phrasing, etc. And uh, she was used to more of a rehearsed environment. She wasn't uh, comfortable in that setting. And in fact, they eventually acquiesced to her request to come back in and redo her harmony vocals. God, I didn't know that. No, I didn't know that. That's not... They tried it. You can, I got this from Don Meehan, the de facto co-producer of that record. The guy who's listed as the producer, Don DeVito, yeah. rest in peace, really was just a company suit uh, not a very hands-on producer. And the the work of what is usually done by the producer was accomplished by Don Meehan, who is a great CBS staff producer, uh, I should say engineer. He's only listed as the engineer. And uh, he got all those great sounds on the record. He's really responsible for the sound of it. I never saw DeVito make one sonic decision during it. And uh, he's a Definitely the unsung, one of the unsung heroes of that record. I guess another one of the uh, functions of a producer is to choose the musicians on the record. That that and uh, getting the sounds. I mean, you're being modest here, Rob, because you chose much of the setup that decreed how the album would sound, didn't you, really? That's exactly where I'm going with this. <laughs> so therefore, uh, men and myself are the co-producers of this record. Let me just uh, get back to my other point about okay. Amy Lou wanting to come in. She was so freaked out by by her uh, performance that she wanted to come back in and try and get it. So they scheduled a performance for her to come back in and overdub her parts to her liking. She came in, did it, and it didn't work out. So the ones, the harmonies of hers that you hear on the record are the ones that she did on the date. Because there's that great moment on the fade out of Oh Sister where you can hear on some pressings where she goes, I fucked it up. Yeah, that's right. And I've listened to that song, I was saying to Carrie earlier, I've listened to that song many times in my life and try to find out which bit she fucked up. And I think she kind of doesn't get the first line of the song and that's about it. But presumably she thought, you know, being a seasoned pro, that they'd do it again. And of course that wasn't the case. If you listen closely, you hear her pitch is kind of wobbly. Right on the very first line, Oh, sister, she's, her, her pitch is like not great. She's like trying to find her sea legs there and uh, not entirely successful. However, her innate talent pulls her through it. To the casual ear, it's okay. And also, it's a Bob Dylan album, man. It's supposed right. to have some funk on it. It's supposed to be rough around their edges. What, why didn't the retakes uh, work out? Were they just not live enough? They, did they not feel? Two problems. There was leakage from her original performances, Right. where her mic was close to Bob's. Also, th his phrasing is so idiosyncratic. Mm. I know this from having sung with him live many times. Mm. If you don't actually watch his face, you'll never get his phrasing because he never does anything the same way twice. <laughs> He's always searching. And um, if she comes in and tries to redo it, she doesn't have his face to watch. <laughs> Yeah, of course. So, so therefore, she's just kind of flying blind. It's not like it's uh, 
a score that's written out on a piece of paper and uh, every every note is is written correctly it's it's what we call a head session not a written session if people come in and uh a ranger has scored every note precisely where it goes. That's no problem if you can read music. However, mm. if you're working totally by ear, such as they do in Nashville or uh, a Bob Dylan session anywhere. In fact, that's the reason Bob went to Nashville in the first place is because that's where they're really good at doing head sessions. Did you uh, know Emmy Lou, by the way, before that session? No, I'd never met her. But interesting, uh, you should say that. Uh, we have a pretty cool connection I had a band called Rock and Robin the Rebels, which was a rockabilly band in Manhattan, bar band, and uh, we even had a record deal on Epic Records, had a couple of singles out. And this band had a steel player, because it was a country band, country rockabilly band. Our steel player was named Hank DeVito, no relation. And Hank later became the steel player in Emmy Lou's Hot Band with James oh, wow. Burton. So, so there's kind of a strange tangential connection right there. So that's him on Amarillo and things like that, that great song. Yeah, he's the steel player on all our stuff, oh, all the hot band stuff. He also Great. became a, a well-known songwriter. He wrote that song, Playing with the Queen of Hearts, I know it's not very smart. A uh, big pop hit by, I think, Juice Newton or somebody. Anyway, he wrote a, a couple of country hits that were uh, rather well-regarded and successful. Hank DeVito, mm -hmm. my man, my steel player, later Emmy Lewis. Rob, just to go back to the song Abandoned Love, were you there when Dylan played that for the first time in, was it the bitter end, the other end? No, no, I wasn't. I heard that he used to, that he was constantly tweaking it, as he does with most of his material, and mm. trying it out on unsuspecting listeners. Mm. That, that was a case where he was doing it in public. I mean, I've heard a lot, I've been the first human being to hear many Bob Dylan songs because he would try them out on me. And, uh, you know, he's just looking for some feedback. And also he's rehearsing the tunes, and it's more fun once you've got a tune down, or think you've got it down, to actually run it by an actual human being. Yeah, yeah. Than well, to just, you know, play well, so, into Sorry, I have to ask, which, which ones were you uh, the first listener? Let's see. Uh, a bunch of the ones on Street Legal. Huh. He ran by me before anybody had heard them. And I said, whoa, man, this, this is, shit is deep. There's one of his real underrated albums. Yeah. It's very, very, very deep. Yeah, it's great. And, and he must have trusted your opinion a lot because going back to the Desire Sessions, when that big band sound wasn't working and you basically said, look, let's scale it down to me, Howie Wyeth, you, Emmylou, Scarlett Rivera. And you went in and did most of the album in, in one night. One night, right. And uh, the only reason we stopped recording that night was because they would have towed our cars. <laughs> There's a 7 a.m. curfew. They tow your car at 7 a.m. outside that particular studio in Midtown, the Columbia Studios. That is one of my favorite Dylan sessions, Wednesday the 30th of July, 1975. It's definitely a magic night in a magic building where Benny Goodman recorded. I mean, all the Columbia greats, Miles Davis, all recorded there. Yeah, that was, that was a fabulous night. Uh, so, yeah, we were just on a roll. It was the first time we'd ever played together. And so much of what we assume that album to be, that, that crisp Howie, Howie Wyeth drum sound, you know, Emmy Lou kind of, kind of feeling away around the singing, that rough uh, sound is, is all in there in that night, isn't it? Yeah, it was lightning in a bottle. I, I read something recently about One More Cup of Coffee, uh, which was that your uh, gorgeous little bass solo at the beginning of that was, you didn't realize Bob started without anybody, without telling anybody, and, uh, and you just came in because the song had suddenly started. That's totally correct. One of the reasons those recordings succeed is because they're so loose. They're kind of like a jam. Uh, we had never played together as an ensemble, and Bob was basically showing us the tunes. So anytime there was a song that we got through all the way without a mistake became the keeper. That was the one we kept. So basically, he's just starting the tune, and nobody else comes in. <laughs> I mean, how he's fixing his drums or something, or, you know, he's, he doesn't realize we're about to play. He's taking a break. And so Bob just started playing. And uh, I figured, well, you know, here's, here's my chance. You know, somebody better start playing. Yeah, because I could hear sort of Scarlett Rivera sort of coming in. Yeah, she, yeah she's like trying to find her way. I mean, yeah. nobody knew the key or anything. A similar thing happens, Rob, in Mozambique, doesn't it? You're in the studio and, you know, you're the one that kicks it off. Exactly. In fact, for the entire first verse, there's no drums. <laughs> so it's exactly the same situation. 
but Bob just launches into a tune because it was so loose. And um, he starts playing his guitar and uh, Wyeth was adjusting part of his equipment. <laughs> so uh, rather than uh, stop the take, figured, well, let's just let it organically evolve, which it did, and it turned out to be an interesting approach rather than um, just starting a tune. In fact, this was always a, a problem with Dylan. He doesn't like to go one, two, three, four before a song. He doesn't like to count the tunes in. He likes to just play, and everybody should follow him, which is something that somebody at his level shouldn't have to be concerned with such mundane things, uh, which is why I was the guy who was designated to do that stuff when we played live. You can see that on the Scorsese thing. I'm the guy going one, two, three, four at the beginning of the tunes. And um, I was discovering this on this Desire session that, yeah, this is the way he likes to work. He likes to just launch into the thing and it's sink or swim. If you're good enough to be there in the first place, you ought to be able to swim. And you seem to be pretty simpatico with Dylan, so much that he made you the, the band leader, right, for Rolling Thunder? Yeah, I, I definitely earned my stripes that particular night, not only by making the right call about the instrumentation, but uh, he saw that I was someone he could rely on to follow him wherever the hell he went, whether he counted the song or whether he didn't have to deal with the mundanity of anything mundane, such as telling people the key. I was able to just follow that stuff. And uh, if he dropped a beat, which is something he's... Uh, He's fond of doing, which is breaking meter, mm -hmm. which gives him a lot of freedom. Uh, a lot of rock and roll players, when they play with a guy like Bob Dylan, who just has his own time sense, they don't adapt when he drops a beat in the tune. But if you listen to the, all the recordings I made with Bob, live and in the studio, you'll hear this many times where there's like the meter deviates from 4-4 or 3-4 or whatever the hell it was. And uh, the first instrument to come in on the new one is the bass. And he picked up on that. You can hear it on Durango on the, uh, on yeah. the Star album. Yeah. That thing goes in and out of meter so many times. And another thing that he was fond of doing, which he wanted the freedom to do, and he needed somebody who could follow the new one. When I say one, I mean the one of one, two, three, four. Yeah. In, in the measure is to break meter and stop and do a stop-start arrangement. A good example of that would be Maggie's Farm on Hard Rain. And, uh, you know, and he, he just stops. And he, he did this, uh, I'd say, at the end of O oh Sister, at the, at the end of the bridges, I should say, mm -hmm. of O oh Sister, you know. Yeah. Mysteriously saved. Yeah, right, mysteriously saved. And, and we have no idea when he's gonna come. Oh, sister, you have no idea when that's going to come. And you better be there on that beat or, you, you know, you're late for the party. So so was it the case that people were following you as if they, as if you were the conductor of an orchestra, like the rest of the band? Yeah, totally. That's that's a matter of record. That's been, In fact, you can see that on the Scorsese movie, Rolling Thunder Review. You can see that uh, I'm definitely given the cues. And uh, Bob came to rely on me as his sort of interpreter to the rest of the band. Well, also, you were saying earlier on that Emmylou Harris could only sing with him if she could look in his eyes. And, th and I think that's best exemplified by the moment in Rolling Thunder Review at the end of Isis when you join him at the microphone and you've both got this crazed look in your eyes. Yeah, he never did that the same twice. Another cool place where we used to do that in the show was, as I just mentioned, the end of the bridge of Oh Sister. Mm. And we would hold that note. Mysteriously saved, we'd hold that sometimes for like 30, <laughs> 30 seconds. It was like a big point in the show. We, in fact, he liked it so much, he kept it on the 76 tour as well. He mm. kept that song for both tours, very unusual. And because uh, he, he liked that moment when we would both hold that, that note, interminably it seemed, mm. and the crowd would go nuts. Of course, the only thing that we, most of us, know about the 76 tour is the, the Hard Rain uh, film. And in that, in, in that particular film, uh, you know, I know it was pelting with rain and everything was, was very difficult. You were very much, uh, and the other, other musicians were mostly in the back, weren't you? As opposed to being in the sort of like the front line, which you were in 75. Yeah, there was, there was a slightly different uh, physical setup of the band there. And I was wondering how you were able to do your job taking 
clues from Bob must have been just looking at the back of his heels, tapping. Exactly right. Just watching his watching his heel, uh, watching his arm. I was far enough away to have sort of a side view of his face. Mm-hmm. I, I used the same methods. I just did it from a greater distance. And you came up occasionally to sing harmony, which I don't see a lot of in in the film. But no, no I actually those harmonies I did all from my mic. All right. On the back line with Stephen Souls. I was no longer featured up front. He changed that uh, format at that point. You know, speaking of harmonies, it's it's funny. I often, especially before the uh, Scorsese film gave you a visual of it, mm-hmm. I would often see things posted where people were raving about Emmy's harmonies on the Rolling Thunder shows. <laughs> she never played one show, man. She only sang with Dylan one night. And that is the night that we recorded the first night of the Desire album. All the subsequent harmonies, all her parts were done by me live. I sang all her high parts. Uh, So I'm intrigued by the recording of Sarah, which, you know, we've all read about uh, Sarah coming to the studio. You, But you were there. So anything you want to say about that? Yeah, it was the first time I ever met her. Bob had invited her to the session and he introduced me to her and... uh, didn't say this is my wife, Sarah. He said, this is Sarah, and we're going to be doing a song for her tonight. That's what he told me. I said, okay, that's cool. And so uh, we went out and did the song. And so I guess he wanted to do this to, uh, at the time they were uh, beginning the rocky phase of their relationship. I think it's been well documented. And um, I mean, they used to, uh, well, you, you could see they were not getting along when they were together. They were, they were definitely having some marital problems. And uh, I believe this was sort of a, a peace offering, an olive branch he was offering to her by composing the song and having her present at its inception, which we totally nailed on one take, by the way. Oh, so I've, uh, that's exactly what I've, what I've read. So she was on the other side of the, she was in the, uh, in the booth and, and he sang it straight through to her. And within the year, the second Rolling Thunder tour had wound up. And there's a, a rumour, I, I mean, you can set the record straight as to whether this is true or not, but when Hard Rain was recorded at Fort Collins, May 76, I, I read somewhere that Sarah turned up, she was there with the kids in, in the wings during the performance of that. Wow. Yeah, well, it's, it's not only that she was there in the wings of that performance, but preceding that gig... There were four or five days that we were cooped up in a hotel because it rained for four or five days straight. And the concert was supposed to be on a given day. It kept getting postponed day after day after day after day until finally they predicted a break in the weather. And we went ahead and did the gig. Unfortunately, the weather forecast was wrong. The break in the weather didn't come till the very end of our set, (laughs) which is... um, well, you see the curtain open and he does, you know, um, actually th- they sort of edited the end of the show onto the beginning of the concert. That hard rain performance that he does, which is in three quarters time. We'd never heard it in three quarters time. <laughs> He'd always done it as sort of a boogie shuffle. And we hadn't uh, done it that entire tour. So suddenly out of nowhere, he, he calls this tune and he doesn't even tell as this is want. He doesn't even tell us. That oh, it's no longer a shuffle. He goes, where have you been, Abu? I think Ringo Starr made a similar um, complaint about this at the Bangladesh thing. <laughs> Granted that he rehearsed it in one meter and in four four, and then did the show in three quarters. It was surprising. Yeah. However, Ringo's only dealing with a tambourine, I believe, yeah. on, on that particular performance. Ringo later played a gig with us, man. He was uh, with us at the uh, Houston Astrodome when we did the Night of the Hurricane. I think I go star on drums. I think I read that everybody brought their own bands for that particular. Like there were a lot of people there. Yeah, it was a, a, a bit of a uh, a bit of a cattle call. It was tough to thin that out. A lot of egos were kind of bruised there. Uh, Stephen Stills, in particular, he was like, but he he prevailed. Stephen Stills, a very strong strong willed individual, he ended up going on with the band because our policy was that if you were going to sit in with Rolling Thunder. You brought your own band. You, you, if you brought your own band, they were going to sit because you were going to use our band. We didn't want to deal with moving the equipment on and off the stage and different mixes. There, it was like too much of a logistical problem. So you could use our band. That's why Patti Smith didn't do the tour, even though she was invited to. 
because mm-hmm. she wanted to bring her own band and she didn't want to she didn't want us back in her up. Maybe she thought it was too too folky a band, I don't know. But Mick Ronson could have dissuaded her. Yeah, I was gonna say Mick Ronson takes it out of the folk idiom. What, what Lovely, did, man, he rocks it up. Yeah. What what did you think of Mick Ronson? Did you did you talk to him? Oh, all the time, man. He was a great guy. Yeah, we used to hang out and uh, we played a lot of gigs together just as a trio between tours. We would go out and do, you know, the Mick Ronson trio, the Rob Stoner trio, the the Ronson Stoner Wyeth trio. I have photographs of it on my Facebook so, so what about all this stuff uh, in the film? Ronnie Blakely in the Scorsese film says that Ronson said that Bob had never, never spoke to him for the entire tour. What is that? Is that true? Yeah, well, that's, that's part of a larger dynamic that uh, Bob didn't want to be bothered having conversations with people all the time. And you know that this... This dynamic is written into the contracts formally of many people, such as Sinatra, Streisand, Presley, etc. Tom Cruise, actually. Yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah, plenty of people. And it's a reasonable request because the main performer has a lot on his mind, his or her mind. And they don't want to be bothered with, with making eye contact and getting drawn into conversation, if it's, how you doing, nice day, whatever. They don't want to hear that crap, man. They want to just be concentrating on what they got to concentrate on. If they got to be polite to every crew member, every musician, every person who accosts them backstage, it's distracting. They don't want to deal with that. Therefore, that is written into the contracts of many big stars. And I can totally dig it. Now, when we're walking past somebody backstage and... You make eye contact. If you don't say anything, it could be perceived as rude. So nobody wants to be put the, the star doesn't want to be put in this position. So Ronson knew this stuff intrinsically that, uh-huh. you know, you don't talk to the guy unless you're spoken to first. And Bob would use me as the conduit to talk to people. Right. I was like one of the few people myself, Jacques Levy, Newworth. We were the people he would talk to directly. I mean, there were those girls. He liked to talk to girls, you know, Blakely and people like that, Mitchell and Joni, even Joan Baez. He would talk to them. But as far as the guys, he didn't want to be bothered conveying stuff to and from them. And he would use a go-between, usually myself or Jacques Levy. Right. But yeah, he didn't talk to, didn't talk to Ronson because that's just the way the thing was structured, the way the, the day was structured. I, I read a quote from uh, Steve uh, Souls who said uh, it was like the court of Henry VIII back there. Huh. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a the politics. Yeah, it said. Well, he went on to say, "Who's going to get the axe?" Like people were worried about whether Bob was pleased with them or not. What do you What do you think about that? Yeah, well, the fact that he didn't give any feedback to you directly would always keep you guessing. So in, in that regard, I can see what he's saying. Maybe he was speaking for himself because he considered himself kind of dispensable. But um, Souls was a great guy, very talented cat. Uh, but he was uh, there, there were a lot of people who were sort of tangential to the band, and I could see that they would be a little paranoid that they uh, – they could get caught loose at any time. So he's speaking for mm. himself in that regard. Yeah, sure. I mean, you would be uh, if if you were even slightly insecure. Uh, that would exacerbate it. Uh, what did you make of uh, Ratzo's book? Oh my God! You mean <laughs> a piece of rock and roll, so-called only because of its length? Well, he said some very nice things about me in it. <laughs> yes, he did. I just want to say that first. But uh, Ratzo, in general, I noticed you guys did something with him. I could never understand his ubiquity in this project, <laughs> his uh, and his self-appointed um, his self-appointed role as the official scribe and historian of all things Rolling Thunder, because yeah. the guy's just like a basically a, a hanger-on kind of nebbishit guy. Well, he carved out a little a little slot for himself in history by doing so, and he continues to do so as evinced by his prominence in the Scorsese film. Absolutely. I mean, it's like a, almost a commercial for him. He got more screen time than, than I did. And they mentioned his name. My name doesn't get mentioned once. And the same thing goes for Ronaldo and Clara. And um, so I, I can never understand it. I guess, I guess he's kind of comic relief. 
He is referred to as a cockroach, though, by uh, by the Stefan Van Dorp, the um, the fake director. Oh, you know, I got a beef with that too, man. Yeah, go on. Yeah, and in fact, many of the red herring, false, false flag things that were inserted there, allegedly by Scorsese personally. Bob had nothing to do with it, according to Marty. I guess you read that too. No, no, I didn't. I have. I assumed he was part of it. No, that's according to Scorsese. I read an interview with Scorsese where he said he hadn't spoken to Bob Dylan in twenty years. And he did this entirely on his own. Whether he did or not is irrelevant. But what is relevant is whoever made the decision to insert this fictitious uh, Van Dorp character into the thing stole the credit from the guys who really did the camera work. How it all can... It was a a six-man crew, great, talented guys, and um, they are only their names only exist about a minute into the crawl of the credits at the end of the film. They're never mentioned. Not only is there great work, which comprises most of the, the Scorsese film, the Scorsese film being basically a cut and paste of Ronaldo and Clara with mm. a few contemporary interviews thrown in. Those contemporary interviews only being by like a few people. I think the only person from the band they in, they interviewed were that they used were uh, Mansfield and uh, Scarlett. A little bit of Ronnie too. Because mm-hmm. yeah. they did interview you, right? They did a whole day. They interviewed thing, they? everybody. They interviewed yeah. Souls and went to everybody's house mm. and interviewed them and spent a whole day there. I mean, it was it was a, an expensive project because they sent to, at my house they had like a, about eight people and eight crew. 18 crew. It was an entire second unit crew. And um, they they spent an entire, and Jeff Rosen came and interviewed everybody, just like he did for No Direction Home. I think they they sort of envisioned this as sort of being No Direction Home Part 2. But eventually they realized that Bob doesn't uh, like to repeat himself. His video <laughs> is, is evinced. It's, it's in his, uh, his movie title, Don't Look Back. He wants to always do something different. So they wanted to do something so radically different that they kind of went with a spinal tap approach of, uh, <laughs> of inserting all of these humorous, uh, humorous characters who didn't even exist. However, this stuff is still in the can. It leads me to think that perhaps they're planning a sequel to this film in which they can use all this unused footage. Yeah, so they got everybody, man. And uh, they didn't use any of it. Therefore, the footage, except for the the, uh, few contemporary things they did use, are all Ronaldo and Clara footage that has been cut and pasted. Marty didn't have to shoot too much new stuff at all. Speaking of Ronaldo and Clara, okay, uh, first of all, how did you get into it? Because you were in quite a few scenes, right? Did uh, Bob just say, I'm shooting this film, do you want to do some stuff some acting yeah ex- exactly he, he just uh, actually Jacques Levy who was the theatrical arm of the brain trust there he had extensive experience as a playwright and director he had a hit show on Broadway called O Calcutta um, a well-regarded member of the theatrical directing community in New York City on the village scene and Jacques Levy being a, a great playwright and the co-author of the lyrics on most of the Desire album, he was the guy who said, look, we're going to do some, we're going to shoot some stuff. I'm going to have a camera crew along. They hired Sam Shepard to come with us to write dialogue. Shepard was writing dialogue, but n- nobody used it. Which is why he eventually got frustrated and quit the tour. So there's the, um, the tonsil hockey scene. With, uh, oh yeah, right. You snogging. Uh, who, who didn't make it to the screen, man? Of me making out with Joan. It wasn't. Oh no, shown. no, no it's it was not somebody Joan. else. It's a crew member. She was a, uh, a one of the girls on the lighting team. Uh, okay. <laughs> so there's more. <laughs> Linda Thomas's was her name. Okay. Right. So how did when that happen? Hockey, I thought you were talking about the uh, the infamous pictures of Joan and myself making out. No, well, I read about that in her memoir. You know, it's there's a, a whole page. Yeah, that's right. It. She mentions it in the, there's pictures, stills from that taken by Ken Regan. Okay. So th- there was there were many scenes that were shot, and they deigned to use very few of them. 
I mean, they, they were just shooting every day, and uh, yeah. the film was only four hours long, so you can't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> However, the, the tonsil hockey scene <laughs> that you referred to was uh, supposedly at a, a brothel, and Ginsburg is there. And, yep. Yeah. So Ginsburg is topless in the background, just, just in case anyone's missed. Yeah, it, right. right. Playing, playing a heterosexual guy who's bringing his grandson there for uh, an initiation present, let's say. The, the one I'm referring to was uh, never seen. It's on, it's on the cutting room floor. Mm. However, it's, it wasn't on the cutting room floor because I asked the guys who were going through all of the voluminous footage of Ronaldo and Clara, what happened to this stuff? Because I got the stills to prove that it exists of me making out with Joan Baez right. uh, a motel room balcony. And uh, they said, yeah, we saw that. It's, it's, we we saw it. In fact, we almost used it. And uh, when I eventually got to talk, sit down and talk with Marty Scorsese, I asked him, what happened, man? It was such a great scene. He said, I don't want that stuff, that kind of stuff on my film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'd rather yeah, have you. If you shot her between the eyes, that would have been better. Yeah, that's more his style. Exactly. After um, a couple of years after the both Rolling Thunder tours wrapped up, you found yourself going on, on tour again with Dylan with the, with the 78 tour. I mean, yeah. 77 is kind of a lost year. But the, the botched experiment of the big band on Desire kind of came back with a vengeance for 78, didn't it? Or was it a different kind of vibe? Uh, different, different kind of big band. It was the only thing it had in common with the, the, the botched <laughs> Desire sessions was the, uh, the amount of musicians involved. This yeah. one was totally organised and constructed intentionally from the ground up by yours truly. Bob called me up after, uh, I mean, after 77, I never expected to hear from the guy again. In fact, after every tour, we'd shake hands, thanks, you know, great great tour, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I had no idea whether he'd ever call me again, because I know he's always changing and trying to evolve and do new things. I was quite frankly surprised when he called me up and said, look, I want you to come out to L.A. and put together a large group. I want to hear myself in a larger setting. I'm going to do a world tour. I want girl backup singers. I want a horn player. He's envisioning this large, large group. So I went out there with uh, just uh, Wyeth, myself, and a jazz uh, piano player named Walter Davis Jr. who used to play with Charlie Parker. So I figured this would really impress him, man. He's going out there with basically a jazz trio. Wyeth and I used to do jazz trio work around town. And so I've got a guy from Charlie Parker's band. How cool is that? We go out there, and uh, he has rented this um, abandoned warehouse, not abandoned, but uh, disused warehouse in Santa Monica, which eventually became titled Rundown Studios. Right. They called it. It was a former gun factory. In fact, we used to find gun parts all over the place. They used to manufacture pistols there. It was basically just industrial space. And we transformed it into, into a rehearsal studio. Bob never showed up. He just kept in contact with me by phone. And uh, I believe he was busy editing Ronaldo and Clara. Of course, right. yeah, yeah. Did he ever talk to you about Elvis Presley, just before we get to the 78 thing? Because that's one of the, the things that's always fascinated me is clearly Elvis Presley was deeply important to him. And he died in, in what is, you know, one of Dylan's lost years, 1977. And he's never gone on record and, and talked about him apart from a couple of lines on the back of a biography or something. Did he ever talk to you about the death of Elvis? Um, not about the death of him, but I know that Bob was kind of personally hurt that Elvis had only recorded one of his tunes commercially, and subsequently some other Elvis Elvis versions of Bob tunes have come out. But at the t at the time of Elvis's death, there was only one recording of a Dylan tune by him, and Bob couldn't understand this. He was miffed by it, man. <laughs> Why had? And I don't blame him. Bob had sent him Forever Young, and Elvis passed on it. <laughs> that would be the perfect. Jesus. Probably Colonel Parker probably passed on it, uh, more, more likely. Well, yeah. that was, yeah. and people say that about every tune that uh, Elvis passed on about the publishing thing. Yeah. Know? But no, Elvis recorded plenty of songs that he didn't have any publishing rights to, especially later in his career when he was being a little more independent of the Colonel. So, so the fact that, I, I find it very curious, that Elvis only recorded one tune, that tune being Tomorrow's a Long, Long Time. 
And he, he didn't do that great a job on it either. I mean, the tune is a beautiful, gospel-y tune. And Elvis well, like, he's, yeah, he sort of, he stole Odetta's arrangement, really, yeah. didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. He took it, he did the Odetta version. Whereas the way Bob did it, Bob envisioned it, it's much more gospel. The, the fact that there's such a dearth of Dylan covers in the Elvis catalog is definitely a mystery. But the reason I brought Elvis up, apart from the, it being around that time, is that a lot of people have pointed to the 78 tour and said it had a kind of Elvis in Vegas, Neil Diamond kind of vibe to the show. Would you say that's that's true? Yeah, well, you know that's due to one person, Jerry Weintraub. Right. Okay, Jerry Weintraub, Hollywood uh, producer extraordinaire, he was the guy who was behind Elvis, uh, Streisand, mm-hmm. Neil Diamond, people you mentioned just now, mm-hmm. uh, and Sinatra. Bob figured, especially because that's why they call it the alimony tour, he figured he got to make some money. He yeah. lost money on Rolling Thunder, and he lost money on Ronaldo and Clara. So he figured, I better, you know, I need a, a bunch of money for this settlement. Otherwise, I'm going to have to start selling off the, the stuff I got already. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to uh, to capitalize on it. And everybody in showbiz is always thinking, even if you're Bob Dylan, I'm sure they're always thinking, oh, man, I, you know, I'm doing so great now. But we, we all know it could end tomorrow. And sure enough, it has because they don't sell, nobody sells records anymore. And you left the 78 tour pretty early on, didn't you? Yeah, I did. But let me get back to the, uh, to the Jerry Weintraub thing. Oh, yeah. So Bob is looking to make as much money as he possibly can to really max out his earning potential. And he knows he has to play big places. And the best place to big, play big places, of course, is out of town, because he saw his the limit of his market potential when he did Rolling Thunder 2. Rolling Thunder 1 was in the Northeast, where he has his strongest appeal. And the shows sold pretty well the ones in big places, and they played a lot of small places. At that point, he realized, wow, the small place shit is not paying the bills. It just it just doesn't cover expenses. So he started um, the 76 tour playing larger places. However, he played them in markets where his appeal was soft, and there were a lot of canceled gigs, I guess you're aware, so they just weren't selling the tickets. So, uh, so therefore, he, he realized this as he's seeing his, the limits of his commercial appeal. He's got to scale it down a little. Unless, of course, he plays places where he's never gone, such as Australia, Japan, um, and various other places that the world tour played at. The first time, it's, you know, it's, that's the honeymoon. He's played these places for the first time in his career. Or maybe the first time since the 66 tour. Yeah, Australia was 66, wasn't it? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So, um, yeah, he had played there in 66. And he got a pretty good reception then, too. Anyway, it was he played places where he was a bigger deal. And so this would enable him to carry a larger group. But it wasn't going to be a Rolling Thunder-sized larger group. It was going to be a very scaled-down, much more efficient thing without all the hangers-on and the extra hotel rooms and all the special considerations given to people's... Uh, given to people, significant others, et cetera, come, coming along with us. He just, it was just going to be a money-making machine, and it was uh, designed by Jerry Weintraub, who's, who was experienced at the biggest people in show business, the biggest draws, playing these slick presentations with the group is uniformed. Rolling Thunder, everybody's wearing their street clothes pretty much. But uh, suddenly, suddenly everybody got uniforms. I'm just just for one second, just a little segue. I'm I'm intrigued about the original Rolling Thunder. What was you know Dylan was wearing the uh, the clown makeup uh, and the uh, enfant de paradis makeup, but you guys were also wearing makeup. Was there a makeup person back there, and was it sort of optional? How did that work before the show? It was optional. Everybody did their own, and uh, I never wore it once. I mean, I wore some eyeliner sometimes. Yes, that's just to make one's eyes pop. You know, it's like right. Right. Old showbiz thing. And um, Scarlett wore it. And not a lot of people wore it. It was pretty much Bob. And also, we didn't want to intrude on his thing. Okay, that's always just bugged me or is The makeup something. thing, that's like a non... In fact, that's such, such a, a, a silly aspect of this that that's one of the things that they chose to uh, to lampoon in the Scorsese movie. 
Right. Yeah. I'm saying that Kiss had something to do with it. But I mean, Bob Bob was part of that, wasn't he? Because he he was the one who said Sharon Stone was going out with uh, you know the guy from Kiss. So Bob was very much a part of that particular uh, lampoon. Well, let's see. You know, I think Marty may have been a bit, a bit disingenuous saying that he hadn't spoken to Bob in 20 years. Yeah, because because Bob, you know, he set up the whole Scarlet Rivera traveled with snakes and all that stuff. Yeah, right. So, you know, eventually. Oh, joke, joke. <laughs> but going back to 78 and the rehearsals, I mean, you must have rehearsed the fuck out of that stuff, presumably. Yeah, we did, because the group was so large. So I was just auditioning people every day and adding to the group person by person. And uh, we had our original drummer was Denny Sewell from Wings. And uh, his visa was denied by Japan, which was going to be our first stop at the last minute because he had been busted with McCartney during that bust. And so so he was persona non grata there. So we went out and got Ian Wallace from King Crimson. And we just had people dropping by to audition every day by invitation only. And um, I got oh, you Pasqua from Return to Forever, great jazz cat. He also wrote the, mu- the underscore music for Bob's uh, Nobel acceptance speech. Were you auditioning these people or was Bob auditioning these no, people? No, Bob had nothing to do with it. Man. Bob it was totally hands off. He was too busy editing Ronaldo and Clara. And uh, he, he just trusted me to do the whole thing. And so were you responsible for the reggae arrangement of Don't Think Twice, for instance, that sort of thing? No, that was, no a lot of that stuff was, <laughs> was collaborative. The, the, uh, we would try, because we were rehearsing without Bob, I would do the lead singing at rehearsals in his keys. Right. At the end of the day, sometimes when everybody had gone home, Bob would drop by the studio and we'd listen to the recordings of the day's rehearsals and we'd take notes and decide we're going to do this, don't do that, change this key, try this arrangement on that, reggae, blah, 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 whatever. And so the next day I had my my work plan of what I was going to run the band through according to what Bob had told me at our listening session the previous night. Sometimes he would uh, go over the stuff with me on the phone, but he never showed up personally, except very rarely. And so we just all got the parts together on our own and uh, sort of were going with, with Bob's decisions, uh, which he was giving, giving to us remotely. What a way to work. I mean... It, it was efficient. Actually, I can see that he didn't want to sit around and slog through a million versions, a million versions of his tunes. He wanted to be be fresh. He didn't have the time to do it. And also, I was performing the kind of function that all the big guys, the Jerry Weintraub type acts I was mentioning, they all do the same thing. There's a musical director who rehearses the band and the star shows up at the last minute fresh as a daisy, just like when they're shooting a scene and the stand-ins stand around and while they get the lighting and the sound and everything, and then the star comes out of his trailer, fresh as a daisy, and does his scene. And Bob wanted to use that same thing of conserving his energy. So he was not hands-on with rehearsing this stuff, as he was with Rolling Thunder when we didn't really rehearse. We just sort of jammed loosely. That's one of the reasons some of that stuff was so sloppy is because it wasn't arranged. I was arranging it on the fly as the as the tour was progressing. You can hear the contrast between the earlier parts of the tour and the later parts of the tour. The songs got much tighter. That's because I was I was in my room after every gig listening to the board cassettes and making notes about, oh, man, this is awful. We need dynamics on this one. Oh, this has no ending. This has no intro, blah, blah, blah. And I, I would insert these things gradually as the tour progressed at sound checks and we didn't have much rehearsals, but the sound checks I'd be held meant to make those changes. So did you play Japan and Australia or just Japan? Uh, Japan, Australia, New Zealand. I, I knew it would go well because the, the rehearsals, I was very confident in this band. Everybody was such a stone pro. Uh, we had worked on the tunes. We had to set down. I wasn't worried about it. And also, I knew the Japanese audiences are great. I've been there also with Robert Gordon and Link Ray. I knew another thing about Japanese audiences, too, that Bob didn't, him never having been there. And that is, they are so attentive and appreciative that they're like a classical music audience. When the song is over, they just go, 
pat, 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 pat. You hear this ripple of polite applause. <laughs> no shouting. There's no, no, people won't stand no up. No whooping. They're so well behaved. So mm-hmm. after the first tune of the first gig, Bob turns around and says, what the fuck? <laughs> Why don't they like us? I knew he'd catch on. Eventually, you could see them sitting in their seats, mouthing along with the songs. They had learned the songs phonetically. It was amazing. They were more like a classical music audience, being very polite and attentive. Yeah, because they're quite quiet when the Beatles played Budokan in the 66, actually thinking about it now. Yeah. That's, a, that's a cultural thing. Perfect audience, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, just, I mean, you know, there's no whooping to, to yeah, uh, exactly. you know, if you see your say hello, you know, or, you know, some heartbreaking tune. Yeah, um, right. Maybe uh, we can uh, ask you a few quick questions because we're getting slightly towards the end of this. Now, this is a silly question, but uh, it's always uh, intrigued me. The Fort Collins uh, recording, the headgear. Oh, what yeah. was up with that? It, tell me. what. Well, you know, Bob is always changing his headwear for every phase of his career. I'm sure you've noticed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's sort of a demarcation point of I'm going to do this style now, that style now. Same thing goes for sartorial choices. <laughs> now, the headgear on that particular tour, he was going for sort of the Rudolph Valentino chic thingy. And I think the, um, that portrait that he chose to use on the cover of the Hard Rain album will back up my story there. Mm-hmm. You totally got the Rudolph Valentino thing with the eye makeup and the pose and he looks like the chic. So that was his uh, headgear choice for that particular tour. Now, but you, you guys were wearing, uh, not, not everybody the band was, but... Not uh, everybody. Here's the deal. Yeah. It was his birthday. So as a birthday surprise, Joan <laughs> instigated this cute little prank that we would all show up on stage wearing scarves on our heads. And so that it was just a cute little in-birthday surprise for him. Okay, well, thank Four you. Four for like two songs, and then I took the thing off. So right. <laughs> yes, because she was wearing a turban, wasn't she? <clears throat> yeah, yeah, right. She was going with it, too. Yeah, because I'm looking at the tour schedule now, and he, he had his birthday off, but the day before was, was Fort Collins, so I guess they celebrated it then, right? Oh, interesting. Okay. Presumably, well, I'm, also, I think you've said that he was hitting the bottle all that weekend. Maybe, was that a birthday celebration or just uh, oh, a thing? I, I think it was the problem was that um, it's something we talked about earlier, that Sarah and the kids were there. And his mom was there, too. Beatty. Yeah, she was brought on wow. stage, wasn't she? That's right. Beatty was there. And um, Bob was in a foul mood, man. And um, I think that it was because was, he was having so much trouble with Sarah. And of, of course, she was. Um, he was. We were bored sitting in that hotel for four days. Well, he he put it into the music, didn't he? I mean, I threw it all away. Lay, lady, lay. Idiot wins. These these songs have a, a new dimension on that album. Yeah, he's definitely in a bad mood. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the weather thing, and the fact that we had to, he had had to eat four days of expenses due to the weather, because every day you're not uh, you're not doing a gig. You, the, the, your bottom line is just being eaten up by hotel and salaries. So I, I believe that that's uh, another reason he was down about that. He had to pay for the taping of that, for the videotaping of that, which was a very expensive venture. Mm. Because he had made a deal with ABC TV to do a, um, a TV special back when we were rehearsing in Florida uh, in the previous months. And right. they, they went ahead, sent a whole crew, did it, and it was awful. It was just totally, totally bad. It was rejected by ABC. In fact, the footage is around somewhere. It's just like the worst versions of Dylan songs you ever heard. It's poorly lit. It's dark. The sound is crappy. He hadn't rehearsed with us. It was really terrible. And so terrible that ABC didn't put it on. But he, however, still owed them a special. But according to the terms of the contract, if he turned down the one they paid for, he had to pick up the tab for the next one. So I right. was also depressed about the financial aspect of that. So the Fort Collins one was sort of make or break. like Exactly, maybe. exactly, yeah. And I know I've read about, but you could please tell us about the fact that you were kind of risking your lives out there, weren't you? Because the the leakage, the electricity. Yeah, and the, and the it electricity. was terrible. It was a, the canopy was leaking, and so rain is falling, and we're all playing electric instruments standing on plywood. The instruments would, there, there would be shorts, man. I mean, there were a couple of times where I, just, I felt one of those coming through my bass strings. 
one time I saw um, Souls go up to a microphone and a, a blue spark went between his face and the microphone. And he, and he jumped back like, whoa! And so, so I think that whoa is on one of the tracks, too. Um, well, although that is a sound that Bob Dylan is, is not averse to making. In fact, I got to give him props for being the first cat to introduce the, the vocalism. Whoa! <laughs> actual singing performances. And it's so <laughs> that John Lennon gave him a shout out on that on the second chorus of Ticket to Ride. And he goes, oh, she's coming, she's coming. <laughs> okay. There's no reason a human being would go, well, on a singing performance unless there was a precedent. So, therefore, the one that exists on Ticket to Ride is definitely John giving Bob a salute there. That's fantastic. Well, you know, I was going to ask you if there's anything about working with Bob Dylan that you've never told anyone before. Anything that just hits you that, that you really haven't said in an interview? Ah. I don't know I'm trying to save that stuff in my book, but uh, <laughs> a little, a little which, thing, a teeny thing. Some of Nobody will listen to it. Okay, I will say he has the quickest mind of any human being I've ever met. He is so fucking smart, this cat. I mean, I've never met anybody like him. He exists on a totally different plane, and I'm sure this is very reassuring to to those of us who are at, who are his acolytes, and I am a long term one. I mean, uh, when I was a, a young guy, I thought Blonde on Blonde and still do was like the greatest record ever. That stream of consciousness, free thinking kind of lyricism, that, that poetry that he writes is just like off the charts, crazy and unique. Many have tried hmm. to, to try and get to that level, but few have. Still is one of a kind, man. There's never been anybody like him before or since. An icon and an iconoclast at the same time, never equaled, often imitated, and seldom do people even get up into his league. But he's just uh, an amazing cat, an amazing artist. There'll never be anybody like him. And to have collaborated with him closely for uh, several years was a great honor for me. And I'm glad to have had the opportunity that he gave me the chance to, to be his band leader three separate times. Is It Rolling Bob, Talking Dylan, was recorded, stuck inside, immobile. Engineered by Rob Ackerman and produced by Robin Guise. Digital imaging by Finn Guise. Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music podcast network. Find us on Twitter at Is It Rolling Pod. I know all about poison. I know all about fiery darts. I don't care how rough the road is. Show me where it starts. <laughs> 